Good job, kids. That was great. Good job, honey. Won't be long. You'll be playing with Bubba and the boys. <laughs> I don't know if we can get a piccolo in there or not in that country western band, but we'll try. Good job, kids. Thank you very much. I'll tell you, I love when families do things together like that. That is great. Well, we have been talking about, uh, in the book of Proverbs, over the last couple of weeks, <clears throat> making good investments. And uh, last week, we looked at uh, the greatest investment of all the investments that you'll ever make. I, I probably got more comments over last week's sermon. You know, uh, some sermons just go together better than others. Not that they don't, you don't get something out of everything, but sometimes everybody's at a place where they just need something, and God knows it, that I don't even know it, and he just... He gels it all together, and it just becomes, <clears throat> you know, uh, what needs to be done. And I think that's what the Lord did last week. You know, we talked about the best choice that you'll ever make in life when it comes to an investment, the best decision that you'll ever make, and certainly, you know, the best thing that you'll ever trade, whatever this world has to offer you for, and, and that's the Word of God. Years ago, when I was at a, just a young guy and I was going to a church camp, we had a young gal that was a beautiful young gal, and she could really sing. And she, you know, she had all of the qualities that any young girl would envy to have. She was pretty. She she was very talented, and, and she could have been a uh, she could have been a world class singer. I mean, she really, really was really was good. And you know, and she came up. She got up and she gave her testimony that night, and and uh, she just really did a sweet job. It wasn't plastic. It wasn't phony. It was just. You could tell that the God had really changed her heart, and it was really one of the best testimonies I think I probably had ever heard. And uh, after, you know, after the sermon uh, was preached and everybody was just kind of milling around, a couple of girl, young girls went up to her and uh, were just in, in awe, you know. And, and obviously, you know, young girls are very impressionable, and they, they see people that they want to be like. And one of the young girls said, she says, you know what? She says, I listened to what you said, and she said, I... I, I want you to know that she said, I, I, I would trade the world for to have that kind of testimony and to have what you have. And that girl was only about 18 or 19 at the time, and I'll never forget it. I was standing off to the right, and she looked at that little girl, and she said, you know what, honey? That's exactly what it cost me. And that is so true, the investments that we make uh, in our lives. And uh, the best choice you'll ever make, the best decision you'll ever make, and certainly the best trade-off that you'll ever make in life is certainly going to be your investment in the Word of God. It has to start with there. All through this book of Proverbs so far, uh, we've saw the process and the importance of getting the knowledge of God under the guidelines of wisdom and understanding. I talked last week how that, you know, America is so dependent on foreign oil, and, and uh, that's a real danger for us because we have our own resources right here to be able to take care of our needs. And yet I likened it to so many times that we have the power of God in us, but we become so dependent on other things and other people. And what God wants to do is unleash that raw power that God has given us inside you. The same power that we looked at last week that, that he used on creation morning to create everything. But it's transformed uh, uh, through your relationship with Jesus Christ uh, that gives us the power and the ability to do everything that God wants us to do. We saw that the greatest single attribute of the Bible uh, and its power that God gave us uh, is to uh, come to the place that we have the preserving hand of God in our lives, in everything that we do. And, and that's what we, we talked about last week in verses 16 through 20. 
that uh, the book, the Word of God, through the power of God uh, in our lives, it will preserve us through life. Uh, I've told you many times on Thursday night Bible study and other times we've been together, even on Sunday morning, how that it preserves nations. It preserves ministries. It preserves churches. And in an individual way, it preserves families. It, pervert, it, it preserves your children. It preserves you as an individual. It preserves everything that we touch. And today we're going to look at our next set of paragraph marks and we're going to see how really it continues on to basically define more things that we talked about last week. So I want to begin today in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 21 and come down through verse 26. Now, this will be a great practical message today. This will be something that no matter where you're at, whatever level you are spiritually, no matter uh, where you're at or where you think you're at, uh, this, this message will help you. There are some messages, you know, that you can, you can listen to and maybe it doesn't apply, apply to you directly and it may apply to somebody else. Not this one. This one, it has something for everybody. And this is one of the great practical messages that, that you need to learn in life and it'll, it'll help everybody here today no matter where you're at, whether you're a new Christian, a midline Christian, or an older Christian. Now, he says in verse 21, My son, let not them depart from thine eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. So shall they be life unto thy soul and grace to thy neck. Then shalt thou walk in thy way safely, and thy foot shall not stumble. When thou liest down, thou shalt not be afraid. Yea, thou shalt lie down, and thy sleep shall be sweet. Be not afraid of sudden fear, neither the desolation of the wicked when it cometh. For the Lord shall keep thy confidence and shall keep thy foot from being taken. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus, and we do love you today. We thank you, Father, for uh, the Word of God that you've given us, for the good folks that are here today. And, Lord, I, I believe that the majority of these people, Father, really want to be what God wants them to be. I believe they're all on different levels. They all struggle with different things. But, Father, today is a message that will help all of us because it brings us back to the base reality of, of what is the number one thing in our life, and that is our personal relationship with you through the Word of God. So help us today, and we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, if you're counting, this will be the sixth admonition of Solomon to his son, where he starts out by saying, my son. It also will be our tenth set of paragraph marks. And I told you that's how we're approaching this, and I showed you the importance of of the concept of my son. And again, we'll look at the principles one verse at a time, and we're going to glean out of this everything that we can. And I think in a practical way, it'll, it'll really help you today. Now, the emphasis of this chapter basically is, and we have talked about God's preservation in a broad sense, but the emphasis on this chapter today is going to be one of defining what God's preservation is and really what it means and how it uh, applies to you and your life, to your family to our church, and certainly to the ministry. Now look at verse 21. He says there, My son, let not them depart from thine eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. Now the them here in this verse 21 will be wisdom and understanding in the form that we've looked at of God's knowledge, which comes from our obviously investment in the Word of God. We saw that last week. But he says, Let them not depart from thy eyes. Now, I know you're on all different levels of the Bible here, you know, and you, you, you all study at different levels and you're all trying to get to a, a point, but you need to understand that the eyes in the Bible uh, are a key study. 
The eyes in the Bible are one of the greatest studies that you'll ever take in the Word of God. One of the best studies you'll ever get your hands on is the study of, of God's eyes. And another study that goes along with that is God's eyes, eyelids. Who would think that there'd be a great study on the eyelids of God? It's one of the greatest studies in the Bible uh, that really helps you understand some things. But for us, for you and for me, our negative issues in our lives that we have, they all start by what we look at. We, they start with what we look at, with what we see, and then we translate that down into our hearts. Attitude and action, it produces an action and a bad attitude. Now, the Bible calls it in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, the lust of the eyes. We also know it uh, in a broad central term as covetousness. And, uh, you know, when the devil told Eve, and remember now the devil came in Genesis chapter 3 to not just mess Eve up, his goal was to destroy the whole plan of God and everything that God was trying to do. And when the devil told Eve about the tree that God told them not to eat of, if you remember that passage in Genesis 3, 5, he said to her uh, that when you, when you eat this tree, he says, your eyes will be opened. He says, you'll be like the gods. Your eyes will be open. You'll be like the gods, knowing good and evil. So in Genesis 3, 6, when, when the woman, the Bible says, saw the fruit and that it was good for food, and then the Bible again says, pleasant to the eyes. It was something very pretty and pleasant to look at. Bible says she ate it. And now uh, you, uh, your eyes, really, when you understand it, they're the entrance of everything that, that we see and understand. And I know things we hear affect us, and I know things we take into our mouth affects us, but things that you look at really affect you. And they affect you because it affects your spirit, which is inside you, and that spirit, as we know from our previous studies, is a great, is a great determining factor in your life. Everything you look at in life, Everything you look at, one way or the other, will uh, affect you in your spirit. And this is why we know that your spirit, we've talked about it many, many times, your spirit, that's your emotions. Your spirits control everything. Your spirit controls everything. Proverbs 25, 28, a very familiar verse, it says, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without wall. What does that mean? It means when you can't control your emotions, you have no defenses. And when you have no defenses, that's when you get into all kinds of problems. Matthew 6, 22, Jesus said, the light of the body is the eye. He says, if the eye be evil, all the body is darkness. Because what comes into your eye affects what you are and who you are and what you do. It's so important that when you're in the hospital in a bad, tragic car accident, or you think you're dead, they look into your eyes. Because the eyes are the window to your soul. And if they want to know if you're alive or not, I'm not sure what they look for. Probably a little sign in there says he's dead. But they look in your eyes because your eyes will tell them if you're dead or not. You know, it's like when a man, it's like when a man is lying to you. People who lie to you have a hard time looking you in the face, eye to eye. How many times have you said, look me in the face and tell me that, you know? Because they look down. Well, yeah, I, I didn't really come to church because I was sick. Um, yeah, it, but, uh, the, but the Chiefs, I went to the Chiefs game because I would feel better after I went there, you know. They don't look at you in the face. People have a hard time looking you in the eye and telling you the truth. And that's because the eyes are so important. 
You know, criminologists say, and I, I, I don't know if this is true or not, criminologists will tell you that if they're interrogating somebody and they, they, they can tell if the person's lying or not by watching their eyes. If they tell a lie, their eyes do something uh, that, that tells them. I forget what it was, you know, but they forget that they watch the eyes. And when the eyes do something that out of the ordinary, then they know they're lying to them. Now, the Bible, you know, I don't, as a Christian, you don't need that because the Bible lays out, you know, the great, the great teaching on a deception back there in Genesis, you know, when, when uh, Esau, uh, where Jacob, you know, deceived his daddy and dressed up like Esau, you know, and all that stuff. Uh, the, the, the Christians don't need that kind of stuff because there's a plan in the Bible that shows you clearly when somebody's deceiving you. But it's in the eyes. It's in the eyes. Remember, Jacob was old. He was blind. He couldn't really see. Now, and I'm, you know, I'm just going to say this, and you know, because it's true. But this is why, in our world today, the media of communication is all on the computer. We call it Facebook, but it really isn't Facebook because you never see their face. And you can say all kinds of stuff on there without ever looking anybody in the eye and, and, and being accountable for what you say. That's the world we live in today. We live in a world today that is moving fast past the pack of you and me communicating as human beings. We communicate through machines now. And that's, what, that's where it's going. I've learned three things in my life. And uh, I got them in my book that I, I got back home uh, that has about 200 things that I've learned in my 63 years. Someday, I'm sure John will put it into a book out there and it'll, another, it'll be another book that sells well under a million copies. But anyway, I've learned three things in life. The first thing I've learned, and these are fundamental truths that I've watched for 45 years in the ministry. Number one thing I've learned is we are who we hang out with. My mama used to say, birds of a feather flock together. And when you have people who are, are mixed multitude people and you see Christians starting to hang out with that mixed multitude, I guarantee you, you're going to have a whole bunch of mixed multitude people. You are today who you hang out with. You are today who you associate with. You may not like that. You may not believe that. That thing is as true as the sun coming up in the morning. You know why? Because uh, 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 evil communication corrupt good manners. That's why. You can't not have that rub off on you. I'll tell you the second one. You are what we eat. We are what we eat. You watch how people eat and what they eat. And you watch what they eat, if they eat healthy or if they eat unhealthy. And down the line someplace, if you eat healthy, you're going to probably stay healthy. If you eat unhealthy, you're going to wind up being unhealthy. We are what we eat. And the third thing is, we are what we look at. We are what we allow to come in through our eyes and it's what we are. You know, there's a great study in the Bible on eyes in the Song of Solomon. I think it's one of the greatest studies uh, for you and for me as a Christian. And uh, the Song of Solomon is a great book. A couple of, uh, couple of um, New Year's ago, probably four or five now, we broke down the book of Solomon on a New Year's Eve. You know, and we did a, like a four-hour expose of it in a book back there. And I remember talking about this. But the book of Song of Solomon is a fantastic book because what it really is in its rendition, it's a picture of Christ looking at you and me as the church, the bride, and, the, and, and describing us in his terms of what he sees. And then the other half of the book is us as the church looking at Christ and we're describing him the way we, want, well, we see him to be. Now, in both things, it's, it's in a biblical format. 
In other words, it isn't like the goofy things we say. Well, I see Jesus with a halo and a white robe and, you know, and sandals. It's not that. The way we present, we're presented looking at Christ is in a pure biblical format. It's looking at Christ through the Bible and all of the things that list on Christ. Each one of them is a study unto themselves of finding out what Christ really is to me. And it's the same way when he writes about me. He talks about things that he just doesn't say, well, you know, you're beautiful, you're tall, you're, you're ugly, you're good looking or whatever. He puts it into a code in the Bible that you've got to go through the Bible and look up those things. And then those things define, here's what the Song of Solomon does. It defines not only how God sees you and me through the Bible in a biblical format, but it defines how we should see and understand him through the biblical format. When you come over there in chapter 1, verse 15, he starts to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he talks about the Lord Jesus Christ, he's using all these different analogies. And when it comes to his eyes, you know what it says? It says that Christ has dove's eyes. Now, we know that in the Bible, dove's is a type of the Holy Spirit of God. And so it's basically saying that when Christ talks about his eyes, he's looking at things through the Holy Spirit of God, okay? But when you go over to chapter 4, verse 1, now Christ is talking, describing you and me, the church. And you know what he says about the eyes when he comes to the church? He says the church has dove's eyes. You know what he's saying? He's saying that you and I as a child of God have the same eyesight that Christ has. We, he looks at things through the Holy Spirit of God and sees them as he is. Our eyes through our personal relationship with him and the Word of God, we ought to see things in life the exact same way. It's incredible study. Eyes is an incredible thing. You know, so when God, when it comes to God's wisdom and understanding, the Bible says, let them not depart from your eyes, you see. In the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6, Deuteronomy is a great book in the Bible. Deutero, 2, duet. You just saw a duet up here. Deutero, 2, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means second giving of the law. <clears throat> what happened was that God gave them the law 40 years back. They didn't do anything with it. The children of Israel never left their, 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 their children a heritage of what God had done for them. And so, when we get to the book of Deuteronomy, which is written toward the end of their 30, 40-year journey, God has to give a second giving of the law because the children of Israel, much like God's people today, left no heritage for their kids. So, He gives it all over again. You know what He tells them? He talks about, when He told in reference to their kids, he talks about taking God's word and putting it upon thy hand and the frontlets between their eyes. That's right here. Keeping the word of God before them, their eyes all the time. That's great advice for every parent. Your hands, put it on your hands. You know why? Because we get into trouble with our hands. Putting up the front of your eyes, you know why? Because that's what we look at. And that's great advice for a parent to keep the word of God with what their children do and what their children see. Eyes are a great study in the Bible. Now he says in that verse, <clears throat> let them not depart uh, from thine eyes. And then he says, keep sound wisdom and discretion. Now look at that for a second. You know what he just did? He just gave you a Bible definition of what God's understanding is. You see, he, he left wisdom be the same. But he took the word understanding and replaced it with the word uh, dis, uh, discernment. Or discretion. He took, the, he, took the, he took that word and changed it. It's discretion now. And he shows you that understanding may be the ability to see any circumstance the way it really is, 
But when it comes to you having understanding in a biblical sense, it means you have the discretion and the discernment to know how to take a circumstance apart, see all the pieces, and put it back together again. It's like, I don't know of anything that would be tougher than to be a watchmaker. First of all, it's very small. You got to wear those big glasses and you got to use little tiny screwdrivers. You got springs, you got gears, you got, you got pieces in there that are so small that it's unbelievable. And yet a, a craftsman watchmaker can take that watch. I can't even change the battery in mine. He'll, box, he'll, he'll break the case off the back. And he'll, he'll take every one of those little gears and springs and levers and trip things and this and that and these little bolts and these little washers and he'll lay them out there and he'll look at that thing and he'll find out what is wrong with it. And now not only does he do that, but now he has the ability to take those same minute pieces that are the tolerances that are so small that it's unbelievable. And he puts them back in that watch case. He puts them all back in the right place, in the right way, and that watch runs. That's pretty impressive to me. He not only has the ability to take it apart, he has the ability to understand each part, what it does, what it doesn't do, and then put it back together. I, I, miss, I appreciate guys that can do work on car engines. I think that's the second most complicated thing in the world next to a watch. I mean, an engine just blows my mind. I mean, you've got all kinds of stuff in there. And I watch these guys tear down these engines. The parts are laying all over the place. And then, uh, you know, they, they diagnose each part. They know what it does. They put it back together. And then they put it back in the car to fire it up, and it runs. I'm, I'm more than impressed with that. I really am. I mean, uh, it, it, it just, it's incredible to get all the parts there and, and put it back together and not have something left over. I'm famous at Christmas when my kids were growing up. Uh, I never use the directions. I just look at it and put it together. And I know that the pieces that are left over are extra pieces that somebody made a mistake and put in that box. No, that's not true. All the pieces have to work. We have, you know, we have, uh, we have a people ministry here. We meet every Saturday or, every, or once Saturday every month. And uh, when we got into that people ministry, it was about one thing. It was a being about being able to look at problems that people have. And not just understand the problems, but have the ability to look at the problems, take that problem apart like a watchmaker takes a watch apart, like a mechanic takes an engine apart, identify each part, understand what each part does, what it causes, cause and effect, and not only to be able to lay it out, but then have the ability through the Word of God to take every one of those pieces and put that problem back together and get it working right. I mean, it's just that simple. And, you know, uh, 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 wisdom may be the ability to see it for what it is, but discretion is the ability to understand the pieces of it. The Bible talks about uh, rightly dividing the word of truth in, first, in, in, in 2 Timothy 2.15. Now, that's really simple. That's talking about the Bible. That's the ability to take apart the Bible and put it back together again rightly without having any pieces left over, <clears throat> without having any verses that you've got to trim out here because it doesn't fit in what you just taught. That's the key. In the military, in the army, for those of you guys that have been in the military, you know it's the same way. You have to be able to, you know, the Bible talks about that our weapon in Ephesians chapter 6 is the sword of the spirit. That's the word of God. But in the military, you have a, you have a weapon, and you need to understand how to take that weapon apart. You can't get in a firefight someplace in the middle of the night and then say, would you turn the light on so I can read the manual how to fix this? 
You've got to be able to know each piece. You've got to be able to break each piece down. When I, I, I still remember when I was in the military years ago, drawn into my brain, you know, when you had that M14, you had three main part groups. You had the stock group, the ba- barrel and receiver group. You had the trigger group housing. And now I apply that to the Word of God. You know, I have two main groups in the Bible. I have the Old Testament and the New Testament. That M14 broke down into subgroups. It had a stock group, a barrel and receiver group. It had a trigger group. It had a forward operating receiver rod. It had a forward operating receiving spring. It had a bolt. It had all the things in it. When I got into the Bible, the Old Testament was the law, the, uh, the writings, and the prophets. The New Testament was the gospel, the acts, and the epistles. You have to be able to break it down. And then you have to be able to look at each part and put it back together again. That M14 had four moving parts forward, had three moving parts rearward. My Bible has uh, an Old Testament that goes fo- backwards and a New Testament that goes forward. It's the same system. But if you don't learn how to take the weapon apart in, in combat, you die. You don't learn how to take this book apart in Christianity, spiritually, you get killed. Amen. That's what he's talking about. Wisdom isn't just knowing a lot of things. Understanding is a just to say, well, yeah, that's a problem. Hey, I can open up your hood and say, yeah, that's an engine. It's the ability to take that engine out, take that problem, break it down piece by piece, understand each part, discern each part, look and see what's working and what's not working, and then be able to put it back together so that it can work. And that's the key. Now look at verse 21 again. It says, now, Sound wisdom. I got to tell you, I think the missing ingredient, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but it goes along with this right here now. I think the missing ingredient that I see in most of God's people's lives today is simply could be termed up in a lack of confidence in themselves. Most of God's people, especially young Christians, but I've seen older Christians get to that point. I've seen older Christians that didn't have any self-confidence. I see younger Christians that don't have any self-confidence. They want to teach the Bible, but they're not confident in the Bible. You see it when they first start to preach, or maybe they first give their first testimony. And it's an okay thing, but it's obviously that you're, you're intimidated by the, the crowd, or you're intimidated by uh, the circumstances. So uh, you get up there. I've, I've, I've had guys get up and preach. I've had them down at the mission get up and preach. I've had them, when I've had them preach someplace else, and the first thing they do is get up and apologize for the crowd because of the fact that this is not going to be as good as you normally want to hear. You know what that is? That's, self, that's a lack of self-confidence. You never hear that out of my mouth, even though I believe that. I mean, you just don't. I mean, you know, you, you just don't. You, 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 you have a confidence that, number one, if God puts you in the spot, then God has given you what he wants you to say. And if God created the scenario for you to get up and say something, then he's got the confidence in you. You ought to have the confidence in yourself. But we'll talk about how that comes here in just a little bit. I, I see people have a confidence problem in dealing with people. I've had people all the time, just about when they first start to disciple somebody, they always say the same thing. <clears throat> well, I want to disciple somebody, but my biggest fear is, what if they ask me a question that I'm not, I don't know the answer to? You know, I still have that issue in my life because every Thursday night when I'm driving over here, I have the great possibility that somebody's going to ask me the question about the Bible I don't know the answer to. You know how I deal with that? Great. I don't know the answer to it. Like there's something wrong with you if you don't know the, all the Bible and all the answer. Now, for me, it's a little different than you. 
because I've been around for a while. But for you just starting out, when you take somebody that just got saved and you take somebody that's been around, and some of you young people who have been around now for a couple of years and you're disciple, you know that that, you know that, that fear that you had of somebody doing that. But what do I always tell you? I always tell you don't worry about it. I always tell you that God works it out that if you've been saved for a couple of years and you've been around here and got into things and got any minute understanding of the Bible at all, the person you're going to disciple is dumb as a stump. They don't know nothing. And to, to them, you're going to look like a Bible scholar. And I found out that their level of questions of where they're at will always be in direct proportion where you're at. But it takes confidence on your part to understand that. Now, I know, you know confidence is an important thing. Now, we all want to walk out on water, but you'll never walk out of water till you get out of the boat. And we all want to do things for God. I heard that on Joel Osteen this morning, and I was getting ready here. In fact, this is his sermon I'm preaching. I just canned mine. I'm preaching his. You'll never come to the place where you have that self-confidence without your relationship in the Word of God. That's how it comes. And you'll get there. I've seen husbands be, uh, not, not, not have any confidence in, in their marriage or how they train and raise their kids. I mean, there's a process there's a process, and, and real Bible confidence can only come from you being sound in your wisdom and understanding. That's where it comes from. It doesn't come from a book. It doesn't come from a, a, a lecture that you hear. It doesn't even come from a church service or a sermon. It comes from within. It comes from you going through a process of becoming sound, becoming strong, becoming steady, becoming unmovable, becoming solid, and through that, you become confident. I've given you the process before, uh, and, I, and there's always new people here, and it's always good to, to hear it again. I told you, when you go through the New Testament, you find five sound things that ought to be in your life. And they're in a progression, just like I said. The first thing you find in 1 Timothy 1.10 is sound doctrine. Now, that's why we put the emphasis on the Bible that we do. That's why we take the great lengths to lay out the things in the Bible in their entirety. We don't just give you the nice, wormy, fuzzy, practical things because the Bible says that all scriptures are given by inspiration and unprofitable, and the first thing that it's profitable for is doctrine. Doctrine shows you what the bottom line is with God. Doctrine shows you what's right. Doctrine shows you fundamentally it's the, it's the baseline. It's the bedrock of everything in your life. If you don't have sound doctrine in your life, then you're going to be unsound in everything else in your life. And the second thing we've talked about in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 is a sound mind. How do you get a sound mind? You get a sound mind by having sound doctrine. That doctrine forms your mindset, and it becomes sound in your mind because you're sound in your doctrine. That produces in this process, Titus chapter 1, verse 13, when you have sound doctrine and you get a sound mind, it'll produce outwardly then a sound faith. You now understand the principles of the Word of God in your life, put in practice in your daily life, what you believe in your mind. It's now your faith is built on something that is bedrock, something that doesn't change. That relieves 
when you get to that point, the fourth one, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, will lead to sound words. We communicate with words. Words are vital. Words are important in the Bible. I've told you many, many times, the key to the Bible is one little concept. It's getting the key words in the Bible. And a key to you being successful in dealing with people is simply learning how to use key words. When to say the right thing at the right time, the right place, or the right way. That's what is important. It isn't about your vocabulary. It isn't about all that you know. It's the ability to be able to use words in communication that bring about a soundness. That's the key. And then, of course, the Titus chapter 2, verse 8, the fifth one, sound words leads to your ability to have sound speech. You're confident in what you know. You have sound doctrine. You have a sound mind. You have sound faith. You have sound words. You have sound, now you have sound speech. Now you have the ability that you can get to the point where people listen to what you say because there's a soundness in your speech. You don't say goofy things. My greatest example of that would be our vice president, Joe Biden. Love Joe to death. Joe is not somebody you want to speak for you. He says the stupidest stuff that you ever heard in your life. Barack Obama would never, in our life, never, 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 I'm saying this with all my sincerity, he never has to worry about ever, as long as he's president, being assassinated. You know why? Nobody wants Joe Biden as president. My, and he's had a classic. My favorite one is when he's up there recognizing all those vets and he's talking about this guy and he asks this guy to stand up and take a bow. And the guy's got no legs. He's in a wheelchair. And he's saying, come on, stand up, Joe. Stand up and let the people see you. Oh, you don't have any legs. All right, just wave, Joe. That's not sound of speech. He does it all the time. He does it all the time. I see Christians do the exact same thing. They just don't have the ability to have that soundness in their speech. Now, and then you get the sixth one. And the sixth one is where we're at today. Proverbs 3, verse 21. When you get sound doctrine, it gives you a sound mind. If you have sound faith and sound words and sound speech, then in Proverbs 3, 21, you get sound wisdom. Now you know what you're doing. Now you have the ability to see any situation, not just as it really is, and that's quite a feat because most people can't do that. Now you have the articulation in your life to be able to take that problem, like the watchmaker, like the engine guy, and take it all apart, define each problem or each part, understand what it does, how it functions, put them all back together again, and make it run. That's the goal, should be the goal of every Christian. People then will seek you out. They know that when you say something, it, you, you got something behind you. That's the key. That's the key. Now look at verse 22. It says, so shall, thy, uh, so shall they be life unto thy soul and grace to thy neck. Now we talk about uh, this uh, before in Proverbs chapter 1 verse 9 where it talked about chains of gold about your neck and garments of, of grace uh, to your head or ornaments of grace, excuse me, to your head. And we know now that the neck in the Bible, represents a picture of, of man's will, your will and my will. And that's the biggest problem we all have. We all know people who are stiff-necked. 
That means they won't bow their neck. Uh, we all know people who are stubborn. That means they won't change. We all know people that are hard-headed. They're going to stay that way no matter what anybody says to them. And we, we use these terms, you know, stubborn and hard-headedness, but basically, in most cases, it basically goes down to a problem with their will. And when you start to deal with it with God's people, uh, then that's where your problem comes in. You know, a, 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 a picture of what our lives should be as God's people uh, basically is my will ornamented and decorated with God's grace. You know, in, in doctrinal issues, in doctrinal issues, we should never, we should always be unmovable. Let me say it that way. Uh, there's things about doctrine in the Bible that this church is unmovable on. And uh, we'll never show any grace in them whatsoever because we know that those will be the fundamental truths by which we know the Bible teaches. But in some areas, that we, we need to be movable. I have two basic rules that I follow. Uh, I, I give no grace on doctrinal issues. I mean, if it's tongues, amillennialism, Calvinism, baptism, regeneration, things like that, I don't give any grace on it. It is what it is. I mean, I may, I may be kind to somebody that comes on a Thursday night Bible study and I may not cut their head off and I'm not, that's not my goal unless they come after me, but I'm not going to, there are some things if somebody would ask me, even I know it's not exactly true, I may say to them, well, you know what, I kind of understand where you're coming from so I can get a chance down the line to correct them at some place, not on a doctrinal issue. If you come into our Thursday night Bible study and you think you can speak in tongues, you're not going to find any. You're not going to find any association of people who agree with you. If you come in and try to teach all millennialism or believe it, you're not going to find very many people or any people who are going to uh, uh, be sympathetic to your cause. But now, you so on, there's no grace on doctrinal issues. But when it comes to practical issues, people that you have to deal with, problems that people get in, there's always grace on those issues, because those aren't doctrinal issues. Those are personal, practical issues. And when you get to the place, you find in most Baptist churches, they have, no, they have no grace on doctrinal issues, but they have no grace on the practical issues either. And that'll never work. Because people are going to have problems and people are going to have to is- have issues. You're supposed to have the wisdom and discretion and discernment to be able to see that. <clears throat> so you don't have to get your back up and get all upset about the fact that somebody <coughs> is... is, is did something or said something or struggling through some time in their life that you don't agree with and don't like, you don't have to get all high and mighty and self-righteous about it because uh, it's only a, a twick of God's finger and you'll be in that boat. That's where the grace comes in, you see. That's where the grace comes in. Now, verse 22 says, and here's the two aspects, life unto thy soul and grace to thy neck, life unto thy soul. Now, that's your spiritual life. That will be a full, rewarded spiritual life in this world we live in today based on your good investments. This will be a profitable life. This will be a Christian life who, who I'm not saying everything is going to be perfect, but it doesn't have to be because you know you got the preserving hand of God in your life. It's a life where you find out all the aspects of God, what He wants you to be, what He wants you to give, what He wants you to do, and then you fulfill it. It's a win-win situation. It'll never be a losing situation. The things that puts us in losing situations is when we lean on our own understanding and we think we're going to do it our way and we get stiff-necked, we get hard-hearted about it, we get stubborn on something, and then we actually think, 
we're going to show somebody something. Like, watch me. I'll show you. You ain't showing anybody anything except that you're an idiot. And you're certainly not impressing God. And I know you're not impressing me. But that's what people do today. See? Life unto thy soul. That's the preserving hand of God. Your life right now to the fullest and the richest in the spiritual sense of it. Not the physical. Then he says, grace to thy neck. That's the reference to your will being put aside and God's will reigning in your life, what God wants you to be, more like Christ every day, using that to make the good quality investments in your life. Both of these will be rewarded, obviously, at the judgment seat of Christ, and so it's putting in the sense here of crowns and, and chains and, and things that you wear, ornaments that you wear, that you, you'll get down spiritually at the judgment seat of Christ. Now look at verse 23, and here's where you start to see in detail that preserving hand of God in your life. Verse 23 says, Then shalt thou walk in thy way safely, and thy foot shall not stumble. Walk in thy way safely. Now that's your walk throughout this life. Now, you all know what I'm about to say here. I'm sure you do. You know that this world in the Bible is likened to darkness, and there's no light. Unsaved people live a life of darkness. Unfortunately, many saved people uh, like that darkness and live in it also. We saw it when we come through Proverbs chapter 1, verse 22, where it was firmly laid out to us that there are some of people who claim to be a child of God who delight in darkness. They like it. They like it. And uh, the reason why they like it is because fundamentally the darkness will hide our activities. Most crimes committed, committed at night darkness to cover their tracks. Nobody can see. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 19 says the way of the wicked is darkness. There's no light in anything. John 3 19 says men, live, lo men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And, and I, you know, and I've always thought about, I've dealt with a lot of people and I'm not saying that I am the epitome of wisdom and understanding, but you can't hang around the Bible for as long as I did and, and pick up a little bit. And uh, I've watched this over the years, you know, how uh, people with problems. And I always, you know, and for me, I'm a great analogy person. I have to take very complicated things and put them in a fundamental analogy that I can understand. It just helps me get it. Uh, I, I, I do that a lot when I teach the Bible. Uh, I thank God he's given me the ability to take something complicated and break all the pieces down and break it out where, where even I can understand it. But I, I've watched this thing of light versus darkness. And, uh, you know, I, I, you take a guy who is lost in a cave. And uh, he goes back in an old coal mine someplace in Colorado or out there in Utah someplace, you know, that's been shut down for 100 years. And he's back there, you know, and he's just goofing around, and he gets so far back that he can't find his way out. It's totally dark. His little light goes out. Now he's completely lost. He's about two miles back in his cave. And he can't find his way out. Every turn he takes, which he thinks was the turn he made to come in, just takes him farther in the cave. Now he's been in there two days. No water, no food. He's desperate. Well, some guys were out there hunting, and they, 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 they saw his car out in front of that thing where he parked it. They were hunting. They came back the next day. It was still there. They got a little concerned. They called the sheriff, and the sheriff called the fire department, and, and they come out there, and now the car's been there for three days. This guy's been stuck in there for three days, back in his mine someplace in total darkness. And so now the sheriff's department organizes a search party of guys who are ex-miners who know what's going on, and they start to go down through that thing, that mine, to find this guy. 
And he's way back in there now. And they get back there, and this guy, he's so desperate, and he's looking back there, and he, 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 all of a sudden he starts to hear something, and way, 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 way down the end of that tunnel, he sees the light coming his way. You know what he does? He starts moving toward that light. He knows that that light is his only way out. He's been lost now for three days. And he begins to move toward that light. And finally, when he moves toward the light, he finds the rescue guys. And he gets out. Now, let's take that same scenario and say that this guy just killed somebody. He held up a bank, shot two people, escaped, ran out of gas, saw the mine down here, and he says, I'll hide in the mine. And he goes as back far in that mine as he can. Well, the helicopters and the search parties are all over the place, and they're going down the highway in those little whirly birders, and they see this car, down, this car down here, and they call everybody down there, and they're looking at the car, and they're checking it all out, and then somebody says, that, that old Sutter's mine down here, maybe he's in there. So they get the SWAT team and they get the National Guard, they get the SEALs, they get everybody, you know. And they get down there and they got their searchlights and their flashlights and their M4s with their little lights on it, dang, and their handguns with their lights on them. And they start moving down that very cautiously. And they cut down through there about a mile back. And he's way, 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 way down there, hiding. But he sees the light coming toward him. Now, what does he do? Does he move toward the light? Or does he go farther back in the cave to get away from the light? Let me tell you something. When you get out of fellowship with God and you start doing what's right and you see the light coming your way, you either come forward because you want to get it right with God or if you don't want to get it right with God, you move farther into darkness. And I guarantee you, when you want to get it right, you come running down to the rescuers and say, man, I was trapped in this. I was out of fellowship. I was miserable. Thank God for coming after me. That was a great sermon you preached. And I want you to know I'm right with God. Thank you for coming after me and giving me the light. But the other guy, he keeps running back in the cave. Finally, you got to get a map of the cave and you got to trap him. And when you finally get the guy and put the handcuffs on him, you know what his first words are going to be? The problem is not him. The problem is the rescuers. Ever been there in a church situation like that where you try to help somebody and you're not the, they're not the problem, you're the problem? I've had people leave these church over the years that said, you know, or any church that I had, and they'll say, one person, 200 people love it, one person doesn't like it, so therefore the whole thing's bad. You're all idiots. You know what the problem is? They're back in the cave. That's one of the greatest illustrations. Helps me understand why people do what they do. People who want to do it right and get right run to the light. People who don't want to do what's right and want to stay in darkness because they love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil, the farther they see the light coming, the farther they're going to get back in the cave. Just put that to a practical use sometime in search of situations maybe you know about or you have to deal with. See if it doesn't work for you. I guarantee you. It'll never be the criminal when he's caught that he ever did anything. It'll be the cop's fault for arresting him. It'll be the person's fault who turned him in. I've had situations where I've, 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 I've had somebody that didn't do, over the years, didn't do what's right, and I knew they wasn't doing what's right, so I set them up so they get snarled in not doing what's right, and when I confronted them with them, it wasn't the fact that you're right, I was wrong. You know, it was the fact, it's the fact you tricked me. Yeah, you're right, I did. Keep going the way you're on, I'll trick you some more. You know how I can trick you? Because you're stupid, that's why. They don't want to hear it. 
If you really want the light and it's coming your way, you're going to run to that rescuer and say, you know what, boy, I was stuck in the darkness. Some people like the darkness. They just, they light in the darkness. And that's going to be a problem. Now, we live in this darkness. We are in this world, but we're not of this world. And the dark devil will use this darkness to make us stumble. And here's how the, the, the Bible will preserve you from his traps. The world is darkness, the Bible's light. Psalms 18, 28 says, For thou wilt light my candle, the Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 9 says that he's a light that shineth in a dark place. John 1, 5 says the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. See, the devil wants to make us stumble. He wants to trip us up. So he'll use the darkness of this world to make you stumble. He'll lay snares. He'll lay traps. He'll put people in your world that you shouldn't be there. And this is why Christians, uh, this is why an unsaved man can never make it. An unsaved man can never make it in life because he's blind. He's in darkness. And he falls for every trap that the devil sets. That's why he'll go through four or five bad marriages. That's why he'll go this, he'll do that. He'll get into all kinds of problems. He'll get into drugs, he'll get into alcohol. Every one of them will strap him down and shackle him with chains that he cannot break. Christians do the same thing. The fact that you're saved and may have the Holy Spirit of God inside you, you are susceptible for every trap the devil does when you dump this book because it's the only light you have. And a child of God, you get in the same snares, the same bad relationships, the same traps. He can stumble, she can stumble, just like anybody else when you're in this dark world without the light. This is the light that God gave you. This is my light that shineth in a dark place. The devil tells us in Romans chapter 14 that the devil can use Christians to make other Christians stumble. God's people fall into the same traps and it's because they won't make the right investment in the number one thing that gives them that, the Word of God. Now, when a Christian refuses to get God's wisdom and understanding, discernment, discretion, then he walks through this life falling for every trap and every snare that the devil lays out for him. Now, he makes bad investments just like the unsaved person does. Now, he makes bad trades like an unsaved person does. Now they make bad decisions. They make terrible, bad choices. Each one digs you, dig, uh, you a little deeper in that hole of darkness. But the Bible says in Psalm 119, verse 130, at the entrance of thy word giveth light. You see, the Bible illuminates the surrounding area of our lives. It gives you and me the ability to see through the darkness and have an understanding and a discernment of where not to walk. Who not to walk with? And now through this, God will preserve your walk with him. We have to walk through the darkness, but God gives you the light. Everything in your life, everything in your life will depend on your walk with God. Everything. Everything in your life will depend on your walk with God, and your walk with God will depend on your relationship and the investment you make in his word. Verse 24 says, When thou liest down, thou shalt not be afraid. Ye shall shalt lie down, and sleep shall, and thy sleep shall be sweet. You know, a Christian should sleep better than anybody else on earth. You know that? 
But we don't. We don't. A Christian ought to have the peace in any situation. A Christian ought to have the contentment. He ought to have the joy, the happiness, the fulfillment of a life with God, serving God. And you ought to just fall off to sleep at night with all uh, that God's doing in your life and all you're doing for Him and the great relationship you have with Him. Why is it that God's people have such tremendous, sleepless, agonizing, emotional times? I had an old lady one time I was preaching and, and, and after I, I was preaching on a piece of God and, and, and somebody afterwards and, and I, I got talking about the same thing about sleeping good at night and somebody come up and said, uh, another guy come up and said, well, you know, he's joking. He said, well, you know what, preacher, when I can't sleep at night, I just do the old thing they all told us. I just count the sheep. The old lady bumped in and she said, not me. Why would I want to talk to sheep when I can talk to the shepherd? There's a lot of wisdom in that. but we don't. And we're so afraid of everything. Our lives are filled with fear and intimidation. Many times based on the bad choices we made. Many times based on the bad situations we've created. Many times it's just a lack of confidence in God and not growing to the point where we can learn to trust God. People will hurt. They'll grieve over their children being lost to the world. They'll grieve over opportunities for God that they had that they let slide by. But without a doubt, the number one tactic the devil uses in his counterfeit and deception will be fear in your life and my life, being afraid. Go back in the Gospels. How many times did Jesus have to reinforce with his disciples? He was said it over and over again, fear not, be not afraid, over and over and over again. God's people ought to be fearless, but in not, they're, fear, they're fearful in almost every area of their life. And the devil will always defeat us, I'm telling you. As long as you have that fear in your life and you're afraid, you're never going to have a victory. The devil will defeat you every time, every time in every area of your life. The devil will always defeat us as long as our fear is present. Fear is a terrible weakness. And yet with God's people, <laughs> we always fear the wrong things. Matthew 10, 28 says, don't fear the guy that can destroy your body, but rather fear him and is able to destroy body and, and, and soul in hell. We get so afraid of the world and all the things of the world, but we never, we never fear the real fear that we ought to fear, and that is a holy God. And let me tell you something, folks. The devil will play on your fear because your fear is always the great X factor. It's always the great unknown. And as long as the devil knows he can push your fear buttons and you don't have your emotions under control through the Word of God, he's going to rip you one way from ever, every way you can. He's going to play you like a broken fiddle. He's going to use you and misuse you, and he's going to pull you apart. My Bible says in 1 John 4, 18, that there is no fear in love, and perfect love casteth out fear. Bible says, ye are of God, little children, and, and, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you that is in the world. Now, when you have the ability to, to have God's wisdom and understanding, and you have that discernment, discretion, then there is no fear in your life, for you see it all. And like the mechanic or the watchmaker, you're able to take it all apart, see all the pieces, and put it back together again. You know, the greatest example of this, I love going in Halloween time to haunted houses. Now, nobody on the planet Earth can afford to go anymore. They're like $50. You take your, got a 
wife and, and two kids, it's $600 just to go through one of them. It's ridiculous. But they are good. And they are, and I, I love them. I, I love going through them. I, I mean, I wish they had a, a, a cheap night. You know, I'd go. I'd go to all of them. I, I think they're the greatest thing in the world. I, I love being, I love going to those things and with all the unknown. And, but they're, you got to understand, their design is to scare you, which is another stupid thing, paying $600 to be scared. But that's what we do. You go in there, and it's, it's got all these rooms, you know, with all these things, and then they all have the same thing. They all follow the same format. Then finally you get into a pitch black, dark room where you can't see nothing. And there's people all around you reaching out, and if you've got long hair, they're pulling on your hair, and the women are screaming. They got things dangling down, just about the thing, and you run into them, and your nose, and you're jumping. You know, you're, you're, there, there's people there, and you hear all these onimous sounds, and people groaning, and, and right next to you, and you hear something moving over here, and you are scared to death. Absolutely. And you go into these things, you know, and there's people grabbing at you, and there's some guy laying on top, and a hand falls down, you know, on your shoulder, and you go, you go ballistic. But what if he went through that haunted house with all the lights on? What if you went through the haunted house with totally no darkness and all the lights on? You'd, the whole scary concept would be gone. It would be simply turn on the lights and all you'd see is a bunch of people who need to get a real job. <laughs> There'd be nothing scary about it. I got to confess to you, I have a starlight scope. And when I used to go to them, I'd always put it in my jacket pocket. You can see in total darkness. And when I get into those things, I always snap that starlight scope on and I'd, I'd put it, walk it through there, you know, and you'd see all these people over here. You know, you'd know where everything was, you know. And you know what? It gave me a great confidence. There was nothing. After a while, I said, this is stupid. I'm paying $600 to go through here, taking a starlight scope and saying, this is stupid, and then I'm out of money. I'm stupid. If you're going to pay the money to be scared, go into darkness and be scared. But that little starlight scope gave you an advantage. This dark room, and you can hear people in there screaming and women yelling and screaming, get me out of here, get me out of here. You just turn that sucker on, and there they are. Ah, oh, they're everywhere. Ah, oh, look at that. There's a guy laying right down there. He thinks he's going to grab my leg. <laughs> I'm going over this way, and you just work your way right through that thing. You know what this Bible is? It's your starlight scope. You get into a dark, tight place, got seven switches on the back. Kind of dark, really dark, horrendously dark, scary dark, devil dark, mother-in-law dark. She's up there pretty high. <laughs> In-law dark. Turn that sucker on, walk through life, you see everything. There's no surprises. You don't have to be afraid anymore. Do you know if you knew what was going to happen tomorrow in your life and you knew what was going to happen today and it was all good, there wouldn't be one thing for you to be afraid about. You, know, you don't have to know that if you have this book because God says he'll preserve you in it, and if you really believe it, that's all you need. That's all you need. That's all you need. That's what the Bible does when you make it your number one investment. In any dark, scary situation, it will simply turn the lights on, and you see there's really nothing to fear. And every night you simply lie down and your sleep is sweet, filled with the anticipation of another day of God using you. 
looking back at your day, being thankful for all that he did for you. And in those situations that you didn't do well or didn't go well, you rest and are confident in the fact that you did the best of your ability what God told you to do and let the peace of God carry you through to the next day. Now look at verse 25. Now here's another kind of fear. Be not afraid of sudden fear. There we go. Neither be neither the desolation of the wicked when it cometh. That'd be Obamacare. <laughs> now this sudden fear here is different than your garden variety fear. See? This one is panic mode. This one is different than the rest. This is a reactionary fear to a sudden issue in your life. Now this sudden fear uh, doesn't give you a lot of time to think. Normally, if you got something coming you're afraid of, you can think of an alibi or work your way through it. Sudden fear, you can't. Sudden fear, sudden fear comes on right now. And sudden fear requires an on-the-spot application of biblical principles, no time to think about it. Now, I got to be honest with you. Nothing like sudden fear will show and reveal whether you have a storehouse of biblical principles in your life or you don't. And I might as well go the next step and tell you something else. To me, on the highest level, that's really the mark of a true leader. A true leader never panics. He never reacts because a true leader has total command of the situation. Do you know why he has total command of the situation? Because he has total command of the principles of the situation. And there's nothing to fear. There's nothing to panic. Emotion will always run your fear meter. But you have to have the ability to suppress your emotions relying on the biblical principles to guide you immediately on the spot. Now, to me, the greatest example of courage, and I, I love to read a lot of books about guys who I think are courageous. And I, you know, I, I've, all my life I, 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 I've gleaned a lot from them, and, and most of them are not even saved people. Uh, they're unsaved guys. But uh, the greatest example, I think, that I've read lately, anyhow, of courage under fire, and I read this a long time ago, uh, was, a, was, a, was a leadership uh, of a man by the name of Colonel Hal Moore. Now, probably most of you don't remember his name, but if you ever saw the movie, We Were Soldiers, uh, played by Mel Gibson, played his part. Colonel Hal Moore was a real guy. And back in the late 60s, uh, he got in charge of the 7th Cavalry, which by wild stroke of coincidence was Custer's one with the last stand, 7th Cavalry. And they took him in and dropped him in, 250 guys of his 7th Cavalry, into a hot zone in, in, in Vietnam, right up on the border. And he was supposed to, uh, uh, they, they thought, intelligence thought, you know, thought it was just a, a, a small contingency there. Well, they found out that they dropped him in 10,000 NVA regular troops that had been camped and stationed right there, 250 guys. And I mean to tell you, the battle that they got into, I mean, the battle that they held their perimeter, it was one of the most unbelievable things you ever saw in your life. And in the military, uh, when things really go to pieces and there's no way out and you're going to, uh, you, you're going to, uh, you know, you, you're in a do or die situation. Many guys down through history have done something that I think is an incredible feat, and that is when the enemy are all around you and you know you can't get out and they're going to get you, they hunker down and they call in artillery on their own position. They just try to give themselves some kind of, but you know as well as I do, one round boy can go short or long and he can kill everybody there. That's a good guy. 
and they hunker down and they call in artillery fire on their own position. It's the only thing they got. And at the crowning moment when this battle is ready and they're ready to break through on all sides, you see him stand up with bullets zinging around and getting over that place. He looks at his situation. There's no fear. There's no, nothing in his mind. He's totally confident, totally courageous. And he sits there and he looks around that thing and he calls in a broken arrow. A broken arrow is when every plane within 300 miles comes in and adopts their ordinance on your position. It was the only chance that he had. And they broke their back. And then while the enemy is still recovering, with the guys that he had left, he led a counterattack and he broke their back and won the day. Incredible, incredible. You see, real courage is not about a man having no fear. To the contrary, real courage is the ability to overcome that fear and to rise to the occasion that lies before you. In his case, it was in a secular war concept in Vietnam. In our case, it's the spiritual battles we're in. Remember, real leadership is not great men in desperate situations of life. That's not real leadership. Real leadership is just ordinary men who are faced with extraordinary circumstances who overcome them by the principles of the Word of God. That's the key. Look at verse 26. Shall the Lord, shall, here it comes, for the Lord shall be thy confidence and shall keep thy foot from being taken. Notice how the feet, the foot keeps coming up because that's how the devil gets you. Notice the foot is connected with your leg, which is connected with how you walk. It's talking about your walk, and when you walk in darkness and the devil lays the trap for you and the snares for you, if you don't have the light of the Word of God to lighten your path, you're going to step in on those traps every time. It's dealing with your walk with God based on your relationship with God. Now he says, the Lord shall be thy confidence. There it is. Now, as I said earlier, I think this is really the source of all, or not most, of our issues. Simply a lack of confidence in ourselves and who we really are. And it stems from a lack of confidence in the Lord and His Word. That's where it comes from. You'll never just go to church and get that confidence. You'll never just become a Christian and get that confidence. You'll never go join a church and just come out you know, every other week or once a month or whatever you get to and, and get that confidence. That confidence become, comes because you realize what that book is. And you realize in life there are investments you have to make. There's decisions you have to make. You also realize that it doesn't take very many bad choices or bad decisions to screw your life up. So when God gives you the chance, when God gives you the opportunity, you don't blow it away, which we've done all of our lives. You're recognizing for what it is, and then you invest. The greatest investment you'll ever get is investing your life in that book. And when you get into that book, and you find God, and you get his word, you get his confidence. And a failed confidence in the word of God that God gave us to override everything the world throws at you and me. In our church, we have two great teaching concepts that I developed by design years and years and years long before this church was ever in existence. And the first one is we all know it as our discipleship lessons. Years ago, I sat down and asked myself, you know, if, if I was gonna, if I was a young Christian and I wanted, what would be the things that I would really want to struggle and want to learn? And I put together 10 lessons that we go through. And when you get saved or, or you come in and you're already saved and you want to start out with a foundational thing, my advice to you is discipleship one. Get in there and get discipled. 
it'll open up, as many of you already know, all other areas of your life. It's not inclusive just to discipling you. You'll see that it'll impact every area of your life and it'll really help you. Once you get through that, the second thing that, that I installed in here, because I realized that getting to where God wants you to get is a process, and I realized that you'll never be worth anything to God until you have the confidence level that God wants you to have. And I must say today that over the last three or four years, I've seen God build so many of you that confidence in you because of what you've done and what you've applied. And yet, you find people that have been around the same time as you or longer than you, there's no confidence there. They still are fearful of every situation. They still try to control everything in their life because they're afraid. They don't have the ability to give their kids to God, to give uh, their job to God, to give everything to God because they're always keeping it to themselves. But I watch it in some of you. The second thing that we did, which I call discipleship too, but it's nothing more than what I call in my own mind our confidence builder. It's the seven things that changed the day you got saved. It walks you through and shows you the seven things that actually changed. I mean, let me ask you a question. I ask it all the time. What really changed about you the day you got saved? What is different now about you that you say, well, I'm washed in the blood. What does that mean? Well, I'm saved. I'm born again. What does that mean? Those are terms that mean something, but what does it really mean? What actually transpired inside you the day you trusted Christ as your own personal Savior? This is the key to unlocking that untapped power I talked about last week. Understanding the seven things that changed the day you got saved. And when you come through those things and you walk through those things, it'll show you who you are now that you're saved. It'll show you who you really are and how God now looks at you. It'll show you what really changed in seven areas of your life that make you a new creature in Christ Jesus. And it will give you, when you grasp it, it will give you the confidence. Because most of our lack of confidence comes because we're saved, we're on our way to heaven. We don't know how God looks at us. We don't really know how to look at God. When we do something wrong, we're fearful that God is going to whack us, give us cancer, kill one of our kids, do something terrible. And that's not God at all. We, have, we don't understand. And when you understand, you get that confidence. God began a good work in you the day you got saved, Philippians says, and he's going to perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. And you need to have that confidence. Psalms 118 verse 8 says, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Well, there's never a truer statement anywhere on this planet. Now, when you get this passage down, six things will be in your life when you get wisdom and understanding that brings about this confidence. One, verse 23 says, you'll walk in your way safely. Two, 23 again, your feet will not stumble. Three, 24, you'll never be afraid when you lay down at night to sleep. Four, you'll sleep soundly. And boy, I can't, didn't even get into it this morning, but Job 33 verse 16 tells you the absolute importance of sleeping soundly at night and what God does while you're asleep. We didn't even get into that today. Verse 26, you have the confidence in yourself because you have confidence in God. And then sixth one, and probably the best one, verse 26, you'll never get caught in the devil's traps. This is what ultimately I mean when I say smarter than the problem. This is what I mean when the Bible talks about light versus darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. And throughout your walk through life, 
through the wisdom and the understanding that gives you the discernment and the discretion, your way is preserved. Your family's preserved. Just as God preserved his word so you and I could have it, just like we talked about last Thursday night, God will preserve that unbroken chain of ministry through your life into your family. You know, stop and think about this. This is the big picture here. And I close with this, but this is the big picture. Where would we be today, every one of us? Stop and think about this. If you have any love for the Word of God this morning and you understand the King James Bible issue and you understand what God has given us, if you have any inkling of that, let me ask you a question. And it's a sobering thought. Where would we be today? if the Waldensians, the Albigensians, and the Huguenots just folded up and didn't hold the line. You think just because they were a group of people that that made it all work? A study of history will reveal that their families paid a terrible price. They paid a terrible price. And I look back on that and I think to myself, where would I be today? I can't speak for you because many of you don't care. But I can't speak for you. I speak for me. Where would I be today if back in that crucial time when God was formulating the preservation of his word in a furnace of iron purified seven times through the persecution and through the brutality of God's people putting up with that, enduring that, what they thought in their little world at the time was what they needed to do. But in God stepping back and look at it, it was not only what they needed to do, God needed them to do it because Bob Alexander would have never got the Bible if they wouldn't have done it. Now let me ask you a question. Say Jesus puts off us coming another 200 years. It isn't about just you here today. It isn't about just me. Because if we don't hold the line in our lives with our individual selves and our families, then there'll be no book that the Bob Alexanders down the line and your, your family down the line, five or six, seven, eight generations, a long way from where we're at now, will never have the Word of God because somebody has to hold the line and stand up for what is right and preach that book and make sure the next generation gets it. You see, that's the big picture. It isn't about just me and you. And yet it is so flippantly. Oh, I'm not reading the Bible today. Oh, I'm not going to church this morning. Oh, I got better things to do. I'm going here. I'm going there. I'm going to do this. Oh, I'm not going to open it up and study it. I'm not going to Thursday night Bible study. I don't like this and I don't like that. And it becomes so inclusive that it really is about us, isn't it? It isn't about us. Is that what you want your fifth generation removed down the line to say? Because you broke the chain? What if the Waldensians would have said, we'll all become Catholic and just live the best life that we can? What if they dealt with the Word of God like so many of God's people deal with the Word of God today? What if they just said, well, I wasn't going to get my neck on the line. I'm going down to the old pub down here and have me a couple brew. I'm going to get me some PBRs and just kick back. Where would we be today? There's always got to be somebody at any place and any time in history who understands what you have, makes the quality investment when you have every chance to make every other wrong investment and simply say, I'm not doing this just for me, though I am doing it for me. I'm doing it for the next generation that somebody leaves them a heritage 
Don't be like the children of Israel who did not leave their children a heritage and God had to come back and give them a second giving of the law because there'll be no second giving of the Bible. What they get is what we'll leave them. Correction. What they get is what you leave them through your family. Maybe you'll never win them to Christ. Maybe you'll never see them, ever know who they are on this side of eternity. But the effect of change in their life through the Word of God will only happen as it goes through us. God's not going to, five generations from now, bring his big spiritual C-130s through and just drop spiritual King James Bibles all over the place. It has to go through us. And the devil will do everything in his power to get you to stumble. He'll do everything in his power to shut off the power, to turn off the lights. He'll do everything in his power to put you in a snare, in a trap, in a bad marriage with Bozo the Clown or a bad marriage with this girl over here who's worthless. It'll be everything that he'll try to do. He'll try to bring every influence, every circumstance, every situation to snare you, to take your foot. And you know what happens when you get into a trap, a leg trap? You quit moving. And unfortunately, in most cases, nobody comes and gets you out of that trap. You're stuck there for the rest of your life. Oh, there's more to this than just you and me. There's more to this than whether you just really want to come to church or get in the Bible or do this or do that. It's a bigger picture than that. Boy, where would we be today if the Waldensians and the Hessites and, the, and all those Bible-believing groups who paid such a horrendous price for Bob Alexander to hold that book in his hand today? Where would we be today if they reacted just like most of God's people reacted? We'd all be in hell is where we'd be. You have the book and the salvation you had because somebody paid a price for you to have it. Now, you better get your head out of your rear end and realize there's a price for you to pay that somebody down the line can have it. Amen. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus, and we do love you. Thank you, Father, that there were men with steel in their backbones and women with the courage to lose their children. Boy, I think of those times when the, they fed their little kids to the hungry pigs and watch those mothers scream and cry and cry holding on to the cell bars to want to just rescue their kids while the little kids cried for their mom and dad as the pigs ate them alive and all they would have to do Lord all they would have had to done was just deny the book that God gave them and they'd have had their kids back but they didn't do it they didn't do it because they understood that there was a bigger price to pay they understood and they had the confidence to God that he was able to keep that that they had committed unto him. And help us to realize today, Father, that, that uh, in this putrid Christianity that is so easy to be so trapped up and caught up in it. Help us to realize today, Lord, there is a bigger picture. There's the generations that come through our families and through the people that our families will meet and marry and get in relationships with and talk to and work with that need the gospel. And if we don't hold a line today with this book like they held it back in the 1600s for us, There'll be no book for them. Help us, Father, to get the wisdom and understanding and the discernment. They'll be able to learn that Bible, take it apart, forward-moving parts, rearward parts, everything about it. Know it as our weapon closer than anything else in life and be able to take every piece of every circumstance of every problem apart, identify the pieces, put it back together, and help people's lives get back on track. And Lord, we'll do thank you and we'll praise you now in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. God bless you. Hey.